But as Ken mentioned, um, we have been traveling this summer. We've been traveling with Paul and his friends as they shared the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire, or throughout the Roman world. And so we're going to join Paul again on his journey today. Um, so let's take a look at the map. So we see this map here, and many of the names that you see on this map should be somewhat familiar to you. So Gray took us to the town of Beria, and uh, Gray uh, shared with us how the Berians diligently searched scriptures to discern the truth, and how that should challenge us to be committed to reading and studying scripture, especially in the light of the post-truth culture we have today. Two weeks ago, we visited Athens, where Karen introduced us to Damaris, who was a Greek woman, and we learned um, that she learned about Jesus and discovered her true identity as a child of God. And last week, Ken took us to Corinth, where we met Priscilla and Aquila, and we were challenged to follow their example of intentional hospitality for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well, today, we join Paul in his third missionary journey, and we join him in his visit to the city of Ephesus. So I expect that Ephesus is one of the city names that's most recognizable to many of us, largely because we've heard of the book of Ephesians. So Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians 10 years after the church in Ephesus was established by Paul. And the book of Ephesians is certainly one of my favorite books in the New Testament. So as you can see from this map, Ephesus is located on the coast. It's on the edge of the country we now call Turkey. It was the capital at that time of the province of Asia, meaning the governor of the province of Asia was seated there. Being on the coast, Ephesus was an important city because it had a port and it also was the crossroads of three important Roman highways. It was a large metropolis attracting traders from the west and the east. Now, some scholars estimate that about 250,000 people lived in Ephesus, and that was huge in those days. It was thought that in the Roman Empire, only Rome or Alexandria had a larger population. So Ephesus was famous for being the site of the Temple of Artemis, and we're going to talk about that a little later uh, today. But Artemis was a Greek goddess, and the temple was so large that it, was, it is now one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was a wealthy, important, and strategic city. But what I think is particularly interesting about Paul's journeys and about Ephesus is out of the places that Paul visits many places across the Roman world, he spends the most time in the city of Ephesus. Paul stays in the city for what some scholars believe to be two and a half or th to three years. And just by contrast, Paul spends only a few days in Athens and about a year and a half in Corinth. On his second missionary journey, Paul makes a short visit to Ephesus, and then on his third missionary journey, Paul deliberately goes back to Ephesus for an extended stay. So I think this begs the question, what impact does Paul's extended stay in the city of Ephesus have? Acts 19 records several vignettes from Paul's time in Ephesus, and this will be the focus of our time this morning. 
we will also look briefly at a few verses from the book of Ephesians. Now, Acts 19 is a long chapter, and I'd encourage you to read it all at home. But, and there's a lot of interesting and thought-provoking stories there. The Holy Spirit was indeed working in the city of Ephesus at that time. But for this morning, we're going to look at some selected verses. So I'm going to read from Acts 19, verse 1, 8 to 12, 18 to 20, and then we'll end with verses 23 to 41. So Acts 19, chapter, Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number had, who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a whole lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only to our trade, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, that they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. 
If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. As I initially read Acts 19 in preparing, pre preparing for this message, I thought it was interesting how Luke, the author of the book of Acts, obviously chose particular events to record to summarize Paul's extended stay in Ephesus. It made me wonder what was the common thread between these events and what does it say about the impact Paul made on the city and people of Ephesus? After reflecting on this passage, I think I would summarize Acts 19 with this statement. The gospel is a radical message which brings about radical change. The gospel is a radical message that brings about radical change. So let's take a look at this radical message that Paul proclaims. In Ephesus, we see Paul faithfully proclaiming the message of the gospel. So from this passage, we see how Paul spends his time in Ephesus. As was his custom, he first, when he first arrives in the city, he enters the synagogue. It says in verse 8 that there he argues persuasively about the kingdom of God. Then, after three months in the synagogue and after facing opposition, in verse 9 and 10, it says Paul had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We don't know much about the hall of Tyrannus, but scholars speculate that this might have been a prominent space in the city where philosophers and teachers would openly share and debate new ideas. This went on for two years, and the passage then says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So as I was reading this, I thought, what is the word of the Lord that Paul preached? And why did Paul's message spread so quickly that all the Jews and Gentiles in the entire province of Asia heard about it? Remember, this was a time before mass communications. There was no radio, no television, certainly no internet. So news largely would have had to spread by word of mouth. How and why did Paul's message gain so much traction and attention? Well, we know both in the book of Acts and particularly in the letter of Ephesians that Paul's message in his travels was consistently about the one true God and about God's love and graciousness revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul summarizes the gospel message, which he proclaimed again and again. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 to 10, but because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with, his, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. Paul's message centered around Christ. His message was that the one true God loves us and has restored our relationship with him by giving new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we are saved. This gospel Paul preached was a message that was completely counter to the culture of the city of Ephesus and the greater Roman world at the time. It was a radical message. Guy McLean Rogers, a classics history scholar, says this, the preponderance of evidence shows that most people in the ancient world made vows to gods to achieve specific, well-defined, short-term goals such as avoiding illness, ensuring a bountiful harvest, completing a voyage safely, getting rich, or attracting a desirable lover. If the goal was realized, the, the person who made the vow dedicated a statue or an inscription to the gods to pay off the vow. Rogers uses a Latin phrase to encapsulate the way people related to gods. Do ut de, or I give so that you might give. It was a reciprocal relationship to gain mutual favor. Contrast this to the gospel message that Paul is preaching. Paul is preaching that the true God is gracious, that he sends his son to die for us so that we might have new life. Moreover, unlike this message or this motto, I give so that you might give relationship, it is instead a relationship characterized by God's grace. The new redeemed life that God offers in Christ is a gift. But Paul's message is countercultural and radical in another important way. Paul's message is that Paul's message would bring danger to himself as we see throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 19, Paul again encounters stiff opposition. Why? Because in preaching the message about the one true God, Paul also had to confront the idolatry that was pervasive in the Roman and Greek culture of the time. And Ephesus was one of the most prominent centers for religious worship of Greek and Roman gods. Some scholars called it the epicenter of Greco-Roman religion. As I briefly mentioned a few minutes ago, and as we discovered in reading Acts 19, the landmark of the city of Ephesus and one of the reasons for the city's wealth and prosperity was the great temple of Artemis. Artemis was one of the most important deities of the first century. It was believed that she was the goddess of hunting, nature, childbirth, and care of children. This temple was no ordinary worship site. It was an integral part of the political, economic, and social foundation of the city. The cult of Artemis had a powerful following. Prominent generals, politicians, and others would journey to Ephesus for annual rites and annual celebrations, resulting in the economic success of the city. Here is a rendition of what the temple of uh, Artemis might have looked like. It was thought to be four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was so large that it is now considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In sharing about who God is and who Jesus is, Paul necessarily preached that other gods so prevalent in Ephesus, including the goddess Artemis, are in fact no gods at all. You may recall in Acts 17, as Karen shared, Paul in, Eph in Athens proclaims, 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. In this passage, we read in Acts 19.26, the silversmith Demetrius highlights that Paul has been preaching that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And this becomes the focus of the uproar that is caused. This aspect of Paul's message has been spreading and beginning to have a real effect on the business of the silversmiths. Paul's message was so radical, so countercultural to the time, that it attracted a lot of attention and opposition. But this gospel message that was radical then is still radical now. The gospel message that was radical then is still radical now. The gospel message continues to be a countercultural message today because the gospel message also confronts the false gods of our modern culture. In the year 2023 in Canada, we don't live in a polytheistic culture as it was in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul. The worship of gods and goddesses are not part of our Western society. We don't actually make physical gods with our hands. In fact, we would probably say that our Western culture today is more secularized. But while we may not carve gods out of wood, silver, or gold, in our modern day, we certainly have many small g-gods that compete for the primacy of our lives. I know in my own life, while I may not have idols created by my own hands, there are many other idols that compete to take the throne of my heart. The gospel is just as countercultural today, as radical today, as it also speaks against the idols of our era and our culture. As Ken said, the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. The last shall be first, the weak will be made strong, we should love our enemies. These kingdom values are profoundly different than the values of our greater society today. And we can so often become products of our culture that in doing so, though we may not know it, we create our own idols. In speaking about our modern Western culture and our modern idols, the late pastor and author Timothy Keller states the following, if there is anything other than God that is functionally more important to your happiness, your identity, your hope, and your meaning, it is functionally your God. It is your idol. I, idolatry is not, making bad, is not doing bad things. It is taking good things and making them ultimate things. It is making something other than God your ultimate source of identity, meaning, and hope. So where do we turn for our ultimate hope and our ultimate meaning? If we are truly honest with ourselves, it is, a, is it in our finances, our bank accounts, our careers? Is it our family or our children? our physical beauty, our health, in our accomplishments or our living moral lives, in our relationships, or even our belief in a particular movement or social cause. To genuinely take in the gospel message requires us to critically reassess the values of our culture and to look inside ourselves. Just like the people of Ephesus, when they heard the gospel, they needed to reevaluate their priorities, their practices, and their passions. How are we influenced by our culture in ways that do not conform to giving God primacy in our lives? Where do we truly turn for significance, hope, and meaning? 
What good things have we made into ultimate things? Paul's proclamation to the people of Ephesus is something we need to equally grapple with today. The gods of our own creation are no gods at all. So in this extended time that Paul spends in Ephesus to faithfully preach this countercultural message, what was the result? What was the outcome? I think the amazing thing is that even in the face of opposition, we see Paul's preaching and witness bear significant fruit. The gospel has the power to bring about radical transformation beyond what we can even imagine. As Paul preached the gospel, God affirmed the message by working extraordinary miracles through Paul. Acts 19 records that the sick were healed and evil spirits were driven out. As a result, we see radical transformation both in the lives of individuals and in the life of the city. Acts 19, verses 19 to 20, we read, A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In these verses, we see the real and dramatic change in the lives of individuals. After hearing the gospel and witnessing amazing miracles through Paul, people turned from their former occult practices at a great cost. A silver drachma is said to be about a day's wages. Estimates range, but 50,000 drachmas is thought to be several million dollars in money today. I have seen estimates in some commentaries to say that this could have been four to five million dollars that went up in smoke. But for those who did this, burning the scrolls did not just mean the loss of the value of the actual scrolls themselves, but they also would stand to lose the ongoing income that the profession they would leave behind actually provided. Moreover, it would also cost them their social and professional networks and their standing in the community. So as I was reading this, I was just awed by the boldness and the bravery of these new believers. How could they have found the courage to so boldly leave their former lives behind at such a great cost? However, we don't just see individuals' lives being changed. We also see hints of how the entire city of Ephesus was being influenced by the gospel message and Paul's miraculous deeds. Demetrius, a silversmith, instigates a riot because he is starting to see an effect on his business, and this concerns him. As the sale of silver images began to fall off, he was raising the alarm bells. It would seem that the preaching of the gospel had a real impact on the economy and the marketplace. It would seem that those who heard and accepted the gospel message, that their spending habits changed in real and material ways. They would no longer purchase shrines or engage in the practices of the Artemis Temple. The impact was great enough that this brought Demetrius to call a meeting of the trade workers to address this looming economic crisis. We see that the gospel not only transforms lives, but also the power, has the power to influence economies and the greater society. The commerce of the city of Ephesus was affected in a dramatic way because of the actions of people who now were followers of Jesus. In addition to the economy from this passage, I think we also see that the growing group of Christ followers of Ephesus was starting to earn the respect of many in the city, including government officials. I think we see a couple of hints of this. 
As the uproar reaches a crescendo, how does the riot actually end? It ends because of a speech of an unnamed city clerk that quells the riot. Now, why would the city clerk stand before an angry mob to essentially defend Christians whose actions threatened the city's economy? After all, the scene was chaotic, and the protesting men were fighting for their livelihoods. One can only speculate, but one reason may be that the local official was worried that the senior provincial authorities of the Roman Empire may respond harshly to the disorder. But I speculate that perhaps there was a more personal reason. It may be that while the city clerk may not have accepted the gospel message for himself, he still saw Christians and the Christians had earned respect in his eyes. He was willing to stand up for them. He stood before the crowd basically saying there was no justification for the accusations against the Christians. Earlier in the chapter, we see another verse that supports that the new Christians in Ephesus were finding respect among the city, city leaders. Demetrius was stirring a mob, and Paul wanted to confront Demetrius in the angry crowd. However, it says in verses 30 and 31, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. With respect to these verses, one commentary I read said, there is something in the fact that these officials of the province were Paul's friends. The tact and courtesy which tempered his zeal and boldness seemed to have gained for Paul the respect of men in authority. Another commentary further says this, friends will often come from among those who are strangers because they have observed the honesty and integrity of Christians. In this passage, we see that Paul and those of the early followers in Ephesus were making an impression on the leaders of the city. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Reverend Dr. Dean Pinter writes, if the preaching of the gospel is having any real effect, sooner or later, it will start to touch the political and economic structures with which our lives are entwined. The gospel of Jesus is not a religion. It is not a set of new ideas. It is not a new ethic. The gospel of Jesus is a way. It is a way of being. The Jesus way touches everything we are. The radical message of the gospel produces radical change. So I think Acts 19 challenges us to ask certain questions of ourselves. In what ways is the gospel transforming our lives? For example, the way we use our money, the way we spend our time, the way we see and relate to our neighbors, our civic leaders, and how as a result of our gospel-shaped lives are we impacting our communities? How are we blessing the city? and the places in which we live. But in answering and reflecting on these questions, I'm hoping you don't go away thinking, this means I must work harder at my Christian walk. I must increase my effort and determination to be bolder in my faith. I must be more courageous, more generous. I must strive harder. I must resolve to do more. Especially if you're new to the faith or exploring Christianity, I hope that you don't come away thinking that the gospel is all about just a bunch of do's and don'ts. 
please don't go away thinking this is the primary takeaway of this passage. To do so would be to miss the very core of the gospel itself. As we earlier saw from reading Ephesians, the gospel message for us is that we are to receive and we are given a gift. So in truth, the power to live a transformed life is not primarily found in us exerting more of our determination or effort. Rather, the power to change is found in gaining a deeper understanding of the gospel message itself. If we allow the truth of the gospel of grace to more and more penetrate into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, then a radically transformed life will be the result. As I said earlier, Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians 10 years after the events we read in Acts 19. In Ephesians, Paul expresses his ultimate desire for the Ephesian church. In chapter 3, he shares his prayer for them. What is Paul's prayer for the people of Ephesus? It's not that they should be more courageous. It's not that they should be bolder or more generous or more discerning. Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we, all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I love these verses. In these eight verses, the word power is repeated three times. What is the power that allows us to live boldly and faithfully for Christ? A life that honors God and that turns away from the gods of our own creation is the result of knowing and grasping the depth of Christ's love for us. How wide, long, deep, and wide that love is. When we fully appreciate the depth of Christ's love, which is the foundation of the gospel message, we cannot help but desire to be transformed more into his likeness. Yes, a radical transformation happens because we increasingly allow the gospel of grace to penetrate into our hearts and into our core being, that our all-powerful creator, the God of the universe, loved us so much that he sent his own son to take on the penalty of our sins that we might be reconciled with him. When we personally grasp more and more the magnitude of the love of Christ, when we are rooted and established in that love, that is the source of power that can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. It is knowing and accepting and dwelling in the boundless love that Jesus has for us that has the power to transform our lives, and it can heal the places and the cities in which we live. May we know this radical love more and more as individuals, in our families, and as a community. Amen.